From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, September 10th. Moab recently lost two members of the community in the worst way. We still don't know who committed this terrible violence or why. These questions continue to hang in the air as community members grapple fear, anxiety, and grief for Kylan and Crystal. It's a wound on Moab, hard on many people, like our local LGBTQ plus community. KZMU is recognizing the need right now for stories from LGBTQ plus locals. So today, we launch a new project. It's called Lift Up LGBTQ plus Visibility. Over the next few weeks, interviews with LGBTQ plus locals will be appearing in the newscast. Soon, we'll have a dedicated page on our website where listeners can access them in one place and celebrate these resilient members of our community. We hope this project helps deepen understanding and empathy within our community and reinforces a sense of belonging. So let's get into it. Ginger Allen is one of the main producers on this project. Ginger interviewed our first LGBTQ plus storyteller and has this introduction. Lori Dufresne is a trauma-informed yoga, climbing, and mindfulness instructor currently living on Ute land, Moab, Utah. They have never considered themselves to be particularly athletic, but they developed a passion for intuitive movement based on their own healing journey. They began teaching in an effort to help support others in healing and also cultivate more queer and non-binary representation in both climbing and yoga. My name is Laura Dufresne. Preferred pronouns are they, them. Yes, they, them. I'm pretty sure I'm 32 and I'm turning 33 this year. So I mostly grew up in Ohio, but I was born in the desert in California. So I always say I'm a desert person at heart. Right now I'm doing canyoneering guiding. Um, I'm also a climbing instructor outdoors, but I'm kind of taking a hiatus from outdoor instruction just while I work on my own relationship with climbing, which has gone up and down a lot in the past year over the pandemic. Um, So yeah, I'm canyoneering guiding, I teach yoga, um, I help out with other people's stuff, odd things here and there, help out with my partner's business, just kind of, yeah, help put on clinics, climbing and yoga clinics, things like that. My coming out story was me deciding that I wanted to come out and I kept trying to make it this huge production. Like I was, I put it literally for months, for months I was planning a video, some epic video. I wanted to have like the coolest coming out video ever. So I was like, what am I gonna do? And I'm like going through all these ideas and I'm like watching coming out videos. And if you ever wanted to just cry, just like scroll through coming out videos. Just like spent like three days just crying over coming out videos. And so finally, the more I research I did into coming out, um, the more I kept coming up across this idea of like, why should we have to come out? Why are we such, you know, uh, viewed as such abnormal people that we have to declare who we are because it's not the norm? And that really bothered me. The more I thought about it, the more I was like, yeah, why should I have to announce who I am? Why can't I just be, right? It's this idea that I'm just a person and I'm a being and and you can't 
you know, the, why is the label so important that it has to be this epic production? And so I got pissed off. And one day I just went and changed my Instagram bio. <laughs> and I said, I'm queer. My pronouns are they, them. And that was it. I literally just changed my bio. I didn't say anything to anyone. I just changed it in my bio. And people started to figure it out. <laughs> And so I've had some, you know, I've had people actually reach out like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, you know, you came out. And I was like, yeah, I guess I kind of did. You know what's funny is I feel like most of my identities or quote labels are really just a rejection of every other label. And so that's why I take those labels on. But if I had my choice, I would just be Laura, the being, and that would be it. But, you know, apparently we have to label everything in our society. So, um, so I guess the closest words are queer and non-binary slash gender fluid slash gender queer slash whatever other words that seem to suit my fancy that day. Um, yeah. So I just kind of grew up knowing that I was different and like I've always kind of felt gender fluid. Like I've always not my, like I guess I never really understood the big deal between like when it comes to gendered clothing. Like I never understood that even as a kid. I was like, what I want to wear the boys clothes, but I want to wear the girls clothes. Like I don't really care. One day I want to be the king and the next day I want to be the princess. Like I just, you know, it's just, I was kind of all over the place. Um, I didn't mind getting dirty. I also loved to play dress up and do makeup. So like it just kind of was all over. And um, I met my first non-binary person actually, um, gosh, just a couple of years ago. So I'd never met anyone non-binary. I didn't even know what it was until I met that person. And um, it's interesting how we have our own, you know, perceptions and things that guide our own um, perspective. And so when I met that person, it was actually in a workplace environment and they were insisting on using their pronouns. Good for them. Um, so I had to make that adjustment really quickly, <laughs> being a, you know in a, in a leadership position in this organization and now having an employee essentially that was non-binary. So I, was, I feel like I was kind of thrown uh, for, you know, I'm happy about it now, but I, I, at the time I was like, oh God, I was kind of immediately thrown into the DEI work of like, I have to protect this person. I need to educate everyone. We need to like do this right. Um, and not just like totally mess this up. And so that was, you know, at the time I was like, oh God, this is, this is a little bit of a pain, but it was, it was mainly, it was like, but you know, looking back on it, I'm like, was it a pain or was it that I had to now reconcile this identity that's being faced with me that like totally fits everything that I've always felt. Right. And so it was like, is it a pain that I'm having to like stick up for this person? Or is it a pain that now I'm being faced with all the problems that I would face if I came out as non-binary. Right. So that was confusing. <laughs> um, but yeah, and it was hard, you know, because because I wasn't that person. I was very much closeted at the time, just mainly out of ignorance because I had no idea what I was. And so I'm like watching this person and, you know, the stuff people were saying behind their backs about them being like a pain um, because you have to actually change your language with this person and like, you know, and how it's just silly and doesn't make any sense. I'm like listening to all this stuff happening, you know, while I'm trying to protect this person and, you know, do the right thing. And it was hard. Like, it was really hard. And I feel like that alone was enough to make me kind of feel the need to stay closeted for longer because I was like, God, the world's not ready. You know, like we think, I mean, I feel like it's, it's hard enough with, um, I don't know, the world's just going through so much awakening and reckoning when it comes to, 
just learning more about people instead of suppressing who people are. And so it, it was definitely hard to see how far we have to go and then to f- try to find the courage and bravery to be out on top of that. I was always really close to family or just people who had known me for a really long time. So moving out here was really just like a blank slate and I felt more open to just kind of be myself, especially looking around and seeing how open others are in the community. So I think in high school was like my big awakening. So I went to a, a, it was a private high school, but it was, you know, like mixed in terms of there were people of all different like races and religions and, um, yeah, and there were like openly queer folks there, and that was very different from my conservative Christian upbringing in a Christian school. And so that was kind of my awakening. And so by the end of high school, you know, so at the beginning of high school, I'm like the homophobic, you know, conservative person. And then by the end of high school, I was just like completely out there. And, um, but I still wasn't really brave enough to join any queer communities at any point in time. I felt like, I don't know. I, a part of it was probably guilt from being so homophobic for so long um, and just spewing that stuff and causing harm and so feeling like I didn't belong in the queer community. Part of it was because at that time, my best understanding of myself was that I was bisexual. Um, and so there was a lot of that kind of like bi... Um, I don't know, just like if you're bi, you're not gay enough, right? So I felt had a lot of that kind of feeling. So I also was like, okay, well, I'm not gay enough. I don't belong in this community. So I never joined queer communities, ever, like ever. Like I had friends, but I was always fringe. Like I was never like in it doing the work. And a lot of that was like just this feeling of like not belonging. You know, I do have to give a shout out to the first non-binary person I ever met. Um, like, I won't say their name, but uh, it was, I feel like it's its brave to be the first non-binary person that folks have met, to be out and be the first person, because it carries kind of like a, inherently it kind of carries a burden of having to educate folks and, you know, answer questions because they inevitably come up if you're the first. So my first queer icon that I really looked up to and respected was Janelle Monae. And um, so I would say, you know what are Janelle's pronouns? I believe they are she, but maybe they are they. Um, So Janelle helped me understand that yeah gender can be more fluid right it doesn't have to be fixed right um even if you're whatever in the public eye and you have a brand it can be fluid and i really like that and my queer education is finding the folks who like blaze the trail right because my understanding is it was black trans women specifically and so that's a hole that I'm looking to fill and I feel like that's who we should all really be looking to as icons um, when it comes to this movement because they really blaze the trail Um, if it weren't for them and their like incredible sacrifices incredible bravery it's a heck of a lot easier to be a 30 year old coming out in a town you know with a bunch of folks who are probably going to be pretty (laughs) pretty cool about it so I I do feel I do see a uh you know um political divide in Moab it seems to be 
at least when you look at it, the people who are making the most noise, which this makes sense, but it seems to be two very divided factions of people. Um, there seem to be a very, you know, conservative, more right-wing side um, that's pretty vocal, and there seems to be a pretty liberal side that's pretty vocal. And But when um, Kylan and Crystal were murdered, um, that definitely was a, a bit of a turning point for me um, personally, and I feel like maybe for other folks in this community, I don't want to speak for anyone, but just based on some things I was hearing from friends and community members, and um, going, for instance, seeing the hatred that was being spewed by community members on Facebook in the posts related to Kylan and Crystal, seeing that vitriolic, homophobic stuff um, definitely uh, was hard. Two lesbians were murdered. Like, that does make you kind of wonder, like, is, is this a safe place? Um, is there a dark side? Is it just one person who didn't like them personally? Was it just a whatever, like, was it just like a happenstance crime or was it a hate crime? And so that's scary. Um, I want to have faith in people and I want to believe that I'm safe here, but do I have moments where, you know, I question how openly gay I seem or look? <laughs> Sure, I definitely have those moments. Like, maybe I shouldn't, whatever, wear this rainbow pin out. Maybe I shouldn't, you know, have anything on my home that looks remotely, you know, pride worthy. You know, maybe I should remove all that stuff, right? Because I'm scared. It's definitely scary. And, you know, and, and also working in customer service and in the tourism industry, I'm not out to clients. I get misgendered every day at work. I don't share my identity with anyone. Um, so literally every day at work is just, I'm just, I just prepare myself to be misgendered. And yeah, that's just the way it is because I don't want to be in the middle of a canyon <laughs> with someone and them finding out that I'm something they don't like. So I just don't say anything about it. So when they misgender me, I just take it and I just keep going. I just expect it at this point. Um, yeah, because, I mean, if it were my own business, if it were my own work, that would be a huge part of it. When I, when my name is on something, I really want to do everything I can to make it a safer place for folks. But when it comes to work that's not mine, it's not my employer, you know, I'm, it's not my business. These aren't my clients. I, I, I'm willing to let that slide for the sake of my own safety. It honestly, it's a daily reminder of why it's so important to create the spaces where people feel safe being themselves and, and asking for people to use their pronouns. I grappled with these issues as a youth and instead I just held it, I just bottled it up for decades and I understand and recognize that some people have to do that in order to survive. I didn't. There were always people that I could talk to, and it's not that I didn't talk to people, I did, but I wish I had put myself out there a little bit more when it was safe to do so. Because there were times, you know, and you kind of know, like I feel like if you listen to your gut, you know when it's generally safe. If you can find those people, and I think that's the thing that's most important is that they're out there, you just have to find them. And if you find folks that you feel safe being yourself around, you can create this community, you can create a family that honors and loves and respects you for who you are.
you know what, what gives me joy are these moments of seeing people trying. Because I'm just so used to people not trying. People don't ask my pronouns, they just assume. I get misgendered literally every single day. Um, and so it's really, really sweet when I see someone trying. Um, um, someone today was trying to refer to me and kept using the wrong pronoun over and over and just kept stumbling and just fixing it and stumbling and fixing it and stumbling and fixing it. And it was just like, and I, I could tell they felt bad, but I was just like, oh, look at you trying, you know? Like, so yeah, so really effort just makes me happy. Effort and growth, seeing people willing to learn, willing to grow and putting in effort, that makes me really happy. Many thanks to LGBTQ plus storyteller Laura Dufresne. This is the first interview in a new KZMU project called Lift Up LGBTQ plus Visibility. Over the next few weeks, interviews with LGBTQ plus locals will be appearing in the newscast. Soon, we'll have a dedicated page on our website where listeners can access them in one place and celebrate these resilient members of our community. Ginger Allen conducted this interview and is one of the main producers of this project. Thank you, Ginger. And thank you, Sarah Mead, who edited this piece. Now let's head to the weekly newsreel where we discuss some of the latest stories of our local area with the reporters who wrote them. After a tense city council meeting in August where elected officials and former staff were critical of the management at City Hall, Joel Linares tendered his resignation as city manager. Linares's last day was Tuesday. Doug McMurdo of the Times Independent has more. Tuesday, he announced, publicly announced his resignation, and Tuesday at 5 o'clock was when he left. But he did put in a two-week notice to human resources at the city. Nobody let that cat out of the back for two weeks, but he did put in his notice. Uh, so he put in his notice on August 24th after that um, very after tense, that meeting. tense meeting at, yeah. at the city council, but it went into effect this Tuesday, I guess. He's effectively gone. Correct, yes, he, he is effectively gone. Uh, he left three days after city attorney Lori Simonson's last day, and she's also involved in this. It's really kind of... Um, a mess. Okay, let's take a stock for our listeners of who has resigned. I know you mentioned Joel Linares has resigned, Lori Simonson, former city attorney, has resigned. Anyone else who has resigned that's notable? I don't know if, how notable she is, but she was a department head. Uh, Emily Solinick resigned after uh, being the director of Moab Recreation and Aquatic Center. Mm-hmm. She um, had especially um, strong comments at that meeting during public comment. Um, alleging that uh, it was immoral the way that the favoritism was shown. And nobody mentioned Joel Linares's name, but clearly that's who it was talking about. So if we can go back a little bit further. Sure. Joel was placed um, on administrative leave so they could reassess his employment or his job description. It was really cryptic. And he was out for five weeks. And then there's a vote on whether or not he should keep his job. 
Mm-hmm. And that vote uh, ended 3-2 with Karen Guzman Newton and Ronnie Dressery voting against retaining him. Right. You know, they didn't prevail. It was a 3-2 vote, like I said. And um, they weren't happy with that vote, apparently, because yeah. um, comments were being made from the dais about the mess that is downtown City Hall. And um, clearly, Ronnie uh, invited Lori to speak mm-hmm. at that August 24th meeting to announce her resignation. Uh, that's pretty dramatic, right? That's something I hadn't seen before, is the city council person inviting one of the staff members to explain um, their resignation, but do it in a way, you know, there's only so much that they can say if it's a personnel issue. Right. But we can debate that because <laughs> Joel um, is not a vested employee. Uh-huh. He's a city manager. He works at the the pleasure of the city council True. or worked at the pleasure of the city council. Mm-hmm. And I think a legal argument could be made that he's not afforded the same protections mm. as, as uh, other employees. Did you get any comments from Mayor Emily Niehaus about Joel Linares' departure? Uh, just that she's going to miss him, that he was uh, a valuable as- asset. The mayor always does that. She, she's not going to say bad a bad thing about anybody in mm-hmm. public. And probably not in private. So right. it's just the way that she rolls. But I'm sure some people are really happy that he's gone and others are uh, quite sad. Well, let's move on because there's another big story, Doug, that you wrote this week about the Moab Police Department and their body camera issues. Where do you want to start with this one? Let's start with Judge Torgerson because it's because of comments that, uh, that he made during uh, an appeal hearing held in his courtroom on August 30th. So let me set the table for you. Moab police officers Clint Johnston and Dan Malone responded to a call of a child having a, quote, super freakout inside a vehicle at City Market on February 23rd, 2021. The father of the child is known to the police. Both officers had a misused their uh, body cameras during this stop. They, uh, one didn't turn it on until he was making contact with the child. They're supposed to be on when they get dispatched to a call. Mm. From the uh, moment they from, get dispatched. Yep, that's the state law and, and policy. And uh, anytime that you're having an uh, in, in interaction with citizens, mm-hmm. um, in most cases, sometimes it's really sensitive, so they turn the camera off. But this was clearly a, a case of when it should have been on. Um, Officer Malone's camera, he went into the store to find uh, the father. They, the father uh, had a case of water and some, a few items in one of the short carts, and he was going through checkout. His camera didn't come on until they got back to the vehicle, which was parked on the, the north side of City Market. Comments were made during this stop that were uh, inappropriate, and the written reports that the officers made when they cited this man for uh, misdemeanor child abuse, they did not match what was depicted mm-hmm. on the camera. The contradictions were just extreme and unnecessary. Clint Johnston said he was wearing a mask that day, which was the law at that time. That's the officer. Yes, that's the officer Clint Johnston uh, said he was wearing a mask. He wasn't, mm-hmm. clearly, for the entire time. Because the body camera footage shows right. him not the, wearing a mask. Right. Okay. And um, they said that the boy... Uh, that it was really cold outside, like it was 50, mm-hmm. and that the boy was not wearing a jacket. The boy clearly had 
on a hoodie with the hood up. Whether or not he was crying, I think that could be in the eye of the beholder. There was really no evidence on it, but the caller said, super freak out. So you think a kid's having a super freak out. Mm -hmm. But later she also said, I hope I'm not being a Karen. You know, take that with what you will. But what was more disturbing to me was... um, comments police made about taking this man to jail for spite mm-hmm. that it was unfortunate that he successfully completed his probation because if he didn't they could have taken them to jail so they were making disparaging comments about the parent yes um in this case right. as they were arresting him right okay um and there's no law against leaving the kid in a car unless it's 150 degrees outside and how, how cold was it? It was 50 it was outside. 50. And um, even the officers, they were not wearing, uh, they were wearing short sleeve shirts. Sure. So, um, and people in the background could, could be seen walking by with shorts on. So it couldn't have been that cold. Um, in any event, they did not use their cameras properly. So they were cited. The man hired uh, attorney Happy Morgan to represent him. She was able to show at the justice court in front of um, Judge uh, Dennelly Welch that the officers did not use their cameras properly. Mm-hmm. And she also showed by their own testimony and their own written reports that what they said happened and what actually happened right. were very much two different things. The justice court judge dismissed based on the camera issue. The city, Lori Simonson, uh, appeals. The former city attorney. The former city attorney uh, appeals, and it goes to... Judge Torgerson, on Monday, August 30th, a week before Labor Day. And Happy Morgan submits two uh, motions for dismissal. One was based on the same camera misuse evidence Mm -hmm. that Welch ruled on. And the other one was a Rule 25, I believe it's called, that the law that Johnston used in which to cite Mm -hmm. the man uh, requires evidence of physical injury. Okay. There was no evidence of physical injury. Mm. So he dismissed it on that cause. Right. Still, he felt compelled to make incredibly strong comments Mm -hmm. on this trend, this history, this institutional problem Mm -hmm. of Moab PD officers misusing their cameras. You know, the law Mm -hmm. and, and and the department's own policy it's very clear. Um, it's very, very clear. And the, the judge said it happens so often that it's become detrimental to a fair process. I have to just underscore this for listeners because this is very unusual for a judge to speak like this. Oh, it's extraordinary. It's, I use the word extraordinary. It's really unusual for a judge to say, hey, this is a pattern. And I've seen this before. And I think that Judge Torgerson knew exactly what he was saying when he said it. Oh, absolutely. And there, and there have been um, a number of incidences. Uh, one of them happened in June of 2020. Former uh, officer Steve Reisenhoover mm-hmm. uh, also had one of his cases dismissed for camera mm-hmm. misuse. Um, mm-hmm. So the judge makes very strong comments. Judge Welch made um, not as strong, but still profoundly strong comments on this problem. Right. So... In my uh, course of doing this, I reached out to Chief Brett Edge, right. and um, uh, his answers are in the paper. I quoted them uh, verbatim. Uh, he is unaware. There is no problem with uh, cameras, and if, if there were, they would address it, solve it, document it. So his response to Judge Torgerson saying this 
department has a long history of um, having issues or misusing their body cams. Um, his response was that he was unaware of such a problem. Correct. Okay. Correct. Um, Happy, I um, asked her to respond to that mm-hmm. because she has a history of um, butting heads with the Moab Police Department over, sure. over cameras and other issues. Sure. And um, uh, I won't read her whole, her whole quote, her entire quote, but she basically said, how can the judges be aware this is a problem? Two judges, not just one, but two judges see it as a problem and he doesn't. How, how can that be? Mm-hmm. And that's a good question. And I'm sure the chief is feeling a little bit um, under the gun here, but it needs to be looked at because we're talking about constitutional freedoms. We're, we're talking about any time mm-hmm. that you get um, have a police encounter for, for any reason. Right. Um, are you going to be treated fairly? Right. And that's fundamental to, to our nation. I'm also, here's another question I have for you, Doug, that I think is interesting about this. In addition to Judge Ferguson's comments, I'm curious why Moab City decided to appeal this case in the first place um, into Judge Ferguson's court. Um, The charges that they wanted to pursue seem very much out of line, which Judge Ferguson said in the court proceedings. You know, do you have any insight on, on that one, why they wanted to pursue it in the first place? I don't have any answer to that question without raising the specter of racism yeah. or selective prosecution. It's a lawyer's uh, prerogative on whether to pursue a case. Um, most prosecutors mm-hmm. don't unless they have a good chance of winning, and uh, they certainly don't appeal cases that they uh, don't have any chance of winning. And this was a loser from Jump Street. That um, brings me to my third question, which is something that we discussed a little bit before we started recording. but. Body cam footage, police officers have that available to them to help them write their reports. Correct. Um, so they can double check, verify that their memory is correct, um, write accurate reports. That helps them as much as it helps defendants. Um, and so the, the third question is, why, why when we live in a, a world where body cams um, are the law, why are the reports having such big discrepancies? That's a very good question. As uh, Judge uh, Welch pointed out uh, in her ruling and explaining her ruling to dismiss, if it wasn't intentional, if it wasn't deliberate, mm-hmm. a simple double checking the camera yeah. to make sure it's activated sure. when it's supposed to be activated mm-hmm. would have solved that problem. You know, they say that they were unaware that their cameras weren't working. They were under the assumption that they were working. But then also in their testimony was it will vibrate every 30 seconds to 60 seconds hmm. to let you know that it's operating. Okay. So if they don't feel that vibration, uh-huh. they need to check their camera, correct? Right. Brett said the last training, and this is in the story, was in January of 2019. Okay, so it's been a while. Jim, Jim Winder was still okay. the, uh, the chief, and he said that... Um, so it's not every year. That the new hires, they were trained by their field training officer. It's so tough. Um, I don't mean to bring up old news, um, but, you know, the Moab PD, the last time that they came under scrutiny in a really big way um, was when former county attorney Andrew Fitzgerald refused to use testimony of certain officers because he felt that they were violating um, a law called Brady Giglio in the courtroom. He couldn't trust them on the stand for various reasons. Each one was individually different, but collectively it was incredibly notable. And 
it just seems like this is another thing to remain aware of. You know, maybe it's training. Maybe it's lack of awareness with the body cameras. Maybe I'm not saying it's intentional, but it certainly um, throws out cases. (laughs) If there's something wrong with your report and you're maybe not intentionally lying, but there's definitely discrepancies that can throw out any case. I also think that sometimes an officer will uh, have a more cavalier attitude if he's dealing with someone um, who he believes would never go to a lawyer other than a public defender and Mm -hmm. be of no help to the public defender. Mm -hmm. So I I think that might play into it. Um, It's all all really, um, really funny. I remember in Las Vegas um, when you're a trial reporter and I was um, walking into a courtroom, there were probably half a dozen (laughs) officers in uniform getting ready to testify and they're in the lobby talking. And I just, you know, jokingly said, you guys out here getting your stories straight? And um, all the looks. I thought, oh, oh my God. Daggers. They're going to throw me out that window. <laughs> Doug McMurdo, editor of the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. Grand County High School was closed this week after an outbreak of COVID-19 affected their teaching staff. Allison Hartford of the Moab Sun News has more. So the high school had to close because... 10 staff members tested positive. And so that completely overwhelms the school's capacity to hire substitute teachers. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the reason that they closed. And they wanted to make that really clear because currently in Utah legislature, it's illegal for schools to close due to COVID. And that law is the same one that bans schools from enacting mask mandates. So the school couldn't say look, we're facing a lot of COVID-19 cases. We'll had to say, hey, we have 10 staff members that can't be there and we just don't have enough right. people to fill in. Yeah. And to be fair, they definitely didn't because those 10 staff members are out for at least seven days quarantining. Right. And so that is just so many substitutes and a lot of days. Right. I recently talked to the school district um, and on September 8th, the outbreak had expanded to be um, 16 students had tested positive and 10 staff were positive. So lawmakers met in a special session this Mm -hmm. year to pass this legislation that covers a few things but mainly deals with schools and Mm COVID-19. Can you tell us about the mask portion of this this law? Yeah, definitely. So Utah is currently one of nine states in the country that restricts mask mandates in schools, um, including in higher education institutes. Um, But the bill doesn't prohibit all school mask mandates. In Utah specifically, local health departments can issue 30-day school mask mandates, but they have to get approval from the state or county government. And so that's what Grand County was able to do. Mm. Um, The mask mandate was put in place by the Southeast Utah Health Department, the Moab Regional Hospital, the Grand County Commission, and the Grand County School District. And so the 30-day mask mandate starts on September 13th for all like pre-K through 12. All pre-K through 12 students, faculty, staff. Mm -hmm. Anyone visiting the school, everyone has to wear a mask. The health department and the county commission have to be on the same page in order to set up a temporary mask mandate. That's right. 
And actually, in Salt Lake County, uh, the health department had previously tried to issue a 30-day mask mandate mm-hmm. recently, but the mandate was actually voted down by city council. Um, and so the mayor has since put into place an emergency order mask mandate, which is now expected to be challenged by lawmakers. Okay. So Grand County has enacted the second temporary mask mandate, but this covers, like you said, pre-K through 12. Mm-hmm. Um can Grand County enact another one? Yes. So previously, at the beginning of the school year, um, which happened in mid-August, they did have a 30-day mask mandate in place for K-6 through students. Mm-hmm. Um, but that one would have expired mid-September. But with this new one, it just totally overrode the old one. And okay. so they can enact these kind of 30-day, like, back-to-back right. mask mandates. Okay. So the idea is to, like, evaluate the situation and right. then before passing another one. Yeah. The 30-day mask mandate in Grand County schools is effective until October 12th. So after that, it can be renewed if it's deemed necessary. But currently, Grand County is at a very high transmission rate for COVID-19, according to coronavirus.utah.gov, um, which is defined by more than 200 cases per 100,000 people over mm-hmm. a 14-day period. And actually, as of this week, the entire state of Utah was at a very high transmission wow. rate. It's interesting because, you know, all of last year the schools had a mask mandate. Right. And they weren't forced to close. Now, when the high school did not have a mask mandate, the school was forced to close. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we should also be aware that we are dealing with like a more transmissible variant as well. Yeah, definitely. Let's go to another article you wrote, kind of an update about the USU construction. Yeah. Tell us about this project. Remind listeners, because this has been in the works for a while. A long time. (laughs) Yeah. So... USU Moab is moving to a new campus after years of not being able to find funding. And this 40-acre lot for the new campus was actually acquired in 2012. Mm. But they were only able to start construction um, in November 2020. I got to tour the construction site a couple weeks ago and um, talked to Liana Edgeberger, who is the Associate Vice President of Utah State University Moab. Um, And she said that so far... The construction for the new campus is on schedule to have a ribbon cutting in spring 2022. Tell us about the campus. I know it's still a construction site, but Mm -hmm. you got to take a tour. Anything notable about the buildings? Yeah, definitely. This new building will be USU's first net zero energy building. It'll be solar powered. Mm -hmm. There will be like geothermal helping control the temperature of the building. And it's oriented on its lot to enhance energy efficiency. Um, It's also silver level LEED certified, um, and LEED is the most widely used green building rating system. So it's going to be a really cool building and kind of a new thing for USU, definitely. USU will be moving, basically, moving all of their offices, staff um, into this new building. Does Mm -hmm. that mean that there's some room for expansion in the new property? Yeah, there's definitely room for expansion. Um, and the new campus will host a lot of new programs too, which is great. So a couple new rooms and new programs that they're offering Mm -hmm. include a fabrication and welding room, um, building construction, a science teaching lab, and an extension demonstration kitchen. Finally, Ali, you are still on the Moab's and News events beat, which yes. is great because we get to get a heads up of what events are coming down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, any previews for us? 
Yeah, so the Moab Celtic Festival, or commonly called Scots on the Rocks, um, is returning for another year. And that'll run from September 16th to the 18th at the Center Street Ballparks in Moab, which is a new location for it. Yeah, that is um, new. Yeah, that they're really excited for. So all of Moab will be able to hear bagpipes <laughs> all weekend. Allison Hartford, reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. And that's it for the weekly newsreel, where we discuss some of the latest stories of our local area with the reporters who wrote them. Find the stories mentioned today in the show notes of the news at kzmu.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU Community Powered Radio.